everyone. Today is Thursday, January 24th, 2008. Welcome to our Neurobiology Podcast Series. Our guest today is Dr. Matthew Tresh. He's an assistant professor at Northwestern University. On our panel today, we have Todd Troyer. Nice to be joining you today. Carlos Palladini. Hello. Rama Retnam. Thank you for your invitation, Salma. And for the first time, we have with us a graduate student, Chris Deister. Hello. Thanks for having me. So for more content on our guests and each of our panelists, please visit our website, snrp.utsa.edu. So, um, Dr. Tresh, one of the fundamental questions in motor systems is whether higher motor areas send command signals to individual muscles or whether they activate synergistically linked muscle groups during complex movements. So in your opinion to date, has there been any consensus on this issue? <laughs> I'm big um, one right at the outset. No, I mean, absolutely not. I mean, I think it's there's evidence for both, and... The, the trick is finding out experiments that actually differentiate between the two different hypotheses. And so in many ways, a lot of the things that are out there can be explained equally by either control strategies. We know that based upon the anatomy and the physiology, the nervous system has access to individual muscles and maybe individual motor units if it wants to. So like Ebfetz's work in operant conditioning shows that you can kind of differentially modulate the activity of individual motor units of a muscle. And so the question, <laughs> the question is whether that is um, the default organization or whether you have to get in special contexts to get that kind of fine-tuned control at that point. So the idea of combinations of muscles is probably not a fundamental limitation or a fundamental bottleneck for control from the nervous system, but the question is, is it kind of like a, a first-order simplification to get you in the ballpark? So is the problem better addressed by parsing different types of complex movements? For example, ballistic movements aren't necessarily equal in terms of parameters to, you know, controlled, um, directed movements, and, you know, is there any use in thinking of it along those lines? I mean, so different classes of movements yeah. might have different organizations to mm -hmm. them? Um, I don't know that necessarily so. I mean, I think there's always room for fine-tuning in ballistic movements or in, in closed-loop control as well, you know, so I think it just comes down to kind of the complexity of the task and what kind of flexibility you actually need to use to get there. Um, yeah. So are people asking at the same, are they really asking the same question like antagonistically or are they kind of talking past each other? What do you mean? Because it seems like, so unless you don't have access to individual muscles, right? So if you do have access in some, in some circumstances, you can change individual things. Mm -hmm. Then unless you control all of them equally, then in some sense you have some kind of synergies. You control groups of them as, as groups, some more than others. Right. And so the question then becomes then what's really the, is there a dichotomy there? Or well, is it just people arguing about matters <clears throat> of quantity? Well, I mean, I think the, the, the question comes to people like myself who are kind of aligned with the idea of the synergy thing. And I think if you can, if, <laughs> if you can explain both of them equally using the simpler hypothesis of activating individual muscles, why invoke anything like synergies? You know, so the, um, the questions become essentially, is there any kind of, does the idea of synergies does actually tell you something about the structure of the way the nervous system is actually organizing the behavior? If you're getting to the point where you're just saying these muscles are used in these behaviors in this particular way, then you haven't really explained much. You've just described the system. And the question is, is this actually a, an intermediate representation, whatever that means, that actually helps to, that's used by the nervous system to kind of structure your control process and structure your, your movements? You know, and that, that does talk about different things then. You know? So if you say that the nervous system somehow, when it's coming to a new task, I think it's kind of oftentimes how the way I think about it is if you say, you're coming to learn a new, new behavior, what do you bring with you to the table? Do you come to that new behavior and you say, okay, I can activate any individual muscle, 
and I'll solve that problem from scratch, you know, because I just can do whatever I want to? Or do you say that I, I know something about coordination structures in the limb, and I know that these muscles will tend to be activated together, so I'll use that kind of a representation as my first order approximation to get me in the right ballpark. And that will be a good way to kind of learn that new task. And then as I learn it and become more efficient, maybe I want to get more fine-tuned. But at least in terms of, you know, is there a... Um, when, I guess that's kind of how I think about it in terms of differentiating the two different ideas, you know, so that... In, when you learn a new task, potentially you have different predictions based on which, how you're going to learn that if you're using individual muscles as opposed to if you're using these kind of coordinate structures. Does that make so, sense? So do you think that the synergy is organized at the level of the spinal cord, or do you think it's organized by a higher order center? Yeah, I mean, the, um, it, it's difficult to say definitively. And I kind of, I mean, I, I, I like to stay in the spinal cord because yeah. I think it's a little bit more tractable and a little bit easier to kind of talk about things in this way. And so there's a lot of evidence to say that if you just, after you spinalize animals, things like locomotion, you lose a lot of the individuation, you know, so you turn into more kind of like basic combinations of muscles and things. So you don't get quite the level of detail that you see in intact animals. Um, that being said, you know, as I, like I said in the talk, there are people who do things like grasping and reaching and things, which are definitely cortically mediated, and you see similar kinds of structures there. Um, but there is definitely tension there that I, I mean, I kind of, there's a lot of things happening at the level of cortex, the level of properties of motor cortex, which we get a little bit hard to talk about in the same context of synergy. So I prefer to stay within the spinal cord because I think it's a little bit more tractable and we can kind of address things a little bit more systematically. Um, so what, what's like the evidence that the spinal cord does any kind of computation? Any kind of computation with regard? What so do you define as computation? Well, just I, I guess I'm I'm looking for like a an anatomical circuit of some sort, whether it's molecular or or so, neurons working together that they, you know, something other than a Sherringtonian type reflex, mm -hmm. but something where you can actually come up with some more complex behavior. So well, without the brain, I guess. I mean, it depends really. There's <laughs> yeah. gain modulation. I mean. Using feedback isn't. I mean, I, I mean, go ahead. You should, you should probably answer. But yeah, I mean, I think it comes to a lot of a question of what you mean by a computation, right? So at a very basic level, I mean, I was talking at lunch about like the um, Richard Nichols' work in terms of muscle properties and one A feedback. So you know, just spindle feedback onto motor neurons does some really clever things. And basically, you know, like if you just take muscle properties on their own and you kind of stretch a muscle, it'll produce force, increase its force as you stretch it. But at some point, it'll just break and it'll stop producing force. And then if you um, shorten it from a, a tonically active, activated muscle, you know, the force will decrease, but it'll decrease with a different slope and then it'll actually kind of say back. But so that's a muscle on its own. If you include 1A reflexes to motor neurons, then you turn your muscle into a nice linear spring. You know, so basically somehow the spindle feedback has, in some ways you could say, a really sophisticated model of the properties of muscle so that it inverts these bad properties of muscle to make the whole muscle with 1A feedback this nice controllable system. You know, <clears throat> the way it's doing it, it's not like there's a whole dedicated circuit of interneurons. It's basically that the muscle spindle itself shares the properties as the muscle, the, the force producing extrafusal fibers in the muscle. And so whatever's happening to the muscle is also happening to the spindle. And then so that feedback's coming back and just kind of inverting the problems that are happening in terms of the force producing mechanism. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess it kind of it kind of boils down to what you know what like you said, what we mean by by circuitry. I guess right. people who work uh, in the brain they they want to see 
some kind of complex interaction among several types of neurons yeah, to come yeah. up with some well, computation <clears throat> of some sort. Well, so then, I mean, then the other examples would be kind of, <coughs> excuse me, things like, so in the frog, the, the case is like a shank saying that depending upon the configuration of the body, the animal will integrate that proprioceptive information and change its control accordingly. You know, and actually, you know, like the, the work that if you stimulate, put um, acid at different points in the back, the animal moves its legs systematically to where the acid is. You know, so it figures out some has some sense of its body scheme that it can integrate and then produce the behavior accordingly. But again, I think it comes down to a question of what you mean by computation, right? right? Because like it's not there's not going to be this little dedicated cerebellum within the spinal cord, which is like modeling the properties of the dynamics of right. the system. It's going to be probably you know something which is looks a little bit more hardwired that you can actually kind of like right. you know pull apart, but you know, at some point, what isn't, what do you need to see in terms of a circuit to make an interesting computation becomes kind of a matter of taste. Right. Well, well, I think the integration example is a perfect one. So you said that it has to integrate in this one, and that's something like people have looked in the brain for a lot. So right. is there a clear circuit in the uh, spinal cord that's doing this integration, or is there a neuron that you can point to that, you know, is performing this integ integrative task? Well, so, I mean, yeah, the, the level of phenomenology, it's clear that spinal circuitry can do these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. What the circuit is underlying that? No. Okay. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, the whole, I mean, and then, you know, the same kinds of things with regard to locomotion. We all know that, you know, spinalized animals can produce the cyclic behavior for locomotion, the CPG, whatever you want to call it. There is that circuitry in the cord which can do this, you know, but nobody's been able to really find that CPG and define what that circuit actually is. And then also, I mean, we were having, Todd and I were having this discussion of what does that actually mean in terms of what is it doing? Um, yeah, I mean, that's getting into kind of more things, but like what is, when you see phenomena like a CPG, how do we talk about that in terms of the computations that it's doing? It, it, like, it, yeah, that's more of an elaborate comment. That's cool, so, but... <laughs> so, so you completely pessimistic about doing, uh, figuring out what the spinal circuit is. It seems like you know you're talking about testing and stuff. Yeah, yeah. It was all on the behavioral level. That's this indication which should be for behavior. You should, you should come with synergies pre-planned and the output of what this circuitry is. Right. And then it, you know, are we making any progress in actually figuring out what properties of the circuit are? And well, so I mean, I think that's this, these are the next steps that, I, and that's kind of the, um, where I. Which is critical, right? And I think the the idea is that, like, um, especially in kind of the work we're doing more recently, we're trying to say, okay, synergies are not just a way to couple muscles, but are actually involved in kind of what are the dynamics of the limb that you actually care about. You know, so it's both a question of how do you pay attention to the control variables as well as how do you pay attention to your state variables. You know, so it's both a sensory and a motor kind of issue there. And so I think that begins to make question or um, predictions in terms of. If you record from interneurons, you can make predictions of how they should be activated into behavior, potentially kind of what their projection patterns are, and also what their inputs are. You know, so you can actually begin to describe potentially kind of what types of combinations of sensor signals should be being integrated at the level of spinal interneurons or other kinds of neurons in the context of doing these kinds of behaviors and things. Um, so I think, I mean, my own, yeah, I mean, motor systems are really hard to analyze. You know, it's like they're incredibly high-dimensional in terms of figuring out the, how many things you have to pay attention to. Understanding the dynamics is really non-trivial. And so I think, you know, in some ways, the, by talking about the problem in this kind of context, it gives us some handles that we can begin to use to, um, you don't use handles to dissect, but handles we can begin to understand kind of the properties of the system 
and analyze our data with more of a guidance to it rather than just saying we've got all these different muscles, how do we talk about them? And I mean, for me, that's kind of, I was, you know, I kind of come from more of the neurophysiology side of things and I'm only kind of very sheepishly getting into the biomechanics, but there's so many cases where you can look in the literature and see that people find these really interesting neurophysiological results, but then they turn out to be just reflections of the biomechanics and things. And understanding how the physiology is related to the biomechanics is really critical, and there's really no way of getting around it. You know, the two are evolving together, and clearly the neural control is designed with respect to the mechanics and the periphery that you actually have, and vice versa, so that the two are kind of coming together. So really to understand one, you need to think about the other one as well. Yeah, so people have done, done, seems like you could do perturbations of the biomechanics, you know, like, so you do sensory things, you do prism experiments, do, you, do they have like big clown shoe experiments or something when you put on huge things and walk around and, and then adapt your, yeah, yeah. you know? No, I mean, that's a whole, the, the, the whole literature on motor learning is, is, there's lots of really cool stuff, like the, um, you know, so certainly like Reza Shadmir's and Sandra Musavaldi's work in terms of interacting with a robot, which gives you kind of novel perturbations and physical perturbations, and it could just be a constant load, and how do you adapt to it? It could be things that depend upon the velocity of movement, and then how do you actually represent that? Um, how do you, when you get a perturbation, what's, how do you figure out the credit assignment? You know, so something goes wrong in the periphery. Is it because you're doing something wrong? Is it because the periphery is doing something strange? And how do you figure that out? Um, as a general issue, that's very interesting. I think the um, with regards to the questions of you know what things that I'm working on, um, that's definitely an approach we want to go to. It's kind of saying, okay, we have a certain biomechanics of what we have. We're trying to build these biomechanical models for like the rat hind limb, and then now what happens if we inactivate a muscle? You know, what would be the best thing the system should do in that situation? Is that what it does? Is that what it jumps to immediately? Or does it kind of get there through some sort of a route, um, which might give us insights in terms of the biases and the kind of initial strategies that it's using to start with. And so that's kind of what we're trying to head towards, is kind of building, getting the, the methods to kind of do these kind of awake behaving animals with chronic EMGs for you know, long-term recordings, and then go in and do these perturbations and see how does the system actually respond. And as much as possible, relate those experiments to the predictions from the biomechanics and the control if we can. I have like a, a devil's advocate question. Yeah, yeah. I was like, um, I, I think I know what might be the answer to it, but for example, <laughs> <laughs> but I'll ask it anyways. Is that the right answer? Uh, or the the, negative answer? That's probably the wrong answer, which is why I'm asking you. Um, so for example, in, in Parkinsonian patients, yeah. they can't initiate any kind of movements or, and if they manage to initiate movements, they're, they're so ballistic and out of control that they can't stop them afterwards. Right. And an interesting thing that some people do, or, or at least uh, one type of therapy that they do, um, problem with, one problem with Parkinsonian patients in particular is that they can't start walking from one end of the room to the other. Right. Um, what some people have found is they put, for example, on the tips of their shoes um, a wire that just holds, for example, a playing card um, mm -hmm. about uh, six inches in front of their shoes. And if... Um, the Parkinsonian patient just looks down and looks at that shoe, at what's right ahead of his foot. He's able to put his next foot somewhere near that, and then they can walk almost normally. Mm -hmm. So ex and, um, externally driven versus internally driven. Yeah. Right. So there's there's definitely um, a feedback that's has to be going through some kind of um, a central brain region where there's dopamine that's being lost, mm. and it seems that 
in this case at least, all motor control is controlled centrally. And you can't initiate any kind of movements unless um, you somehow um, cue, it. cue it and get over the fact that there's no dopamine in the brain. So I guess you're asking with regard to how much do you need sensory feedback? Or you with regard so, to well, how much do you need sensory Their spinal reflexes so are all completely intact. So everything else is intact, right? So all these uh, biomechanical... Um, right. Synergies are, are and units are, are still they, there. If they, and, exist. <laughs> if, if they exist, right? So that's what I'm asking. So if they exist and they're all still there, um, it should be able to be that um, you just give some kind of um, will, some kind of cue, and then the biomechanics and the spinal cord action, um, if we want to call it a circuit or not, will just do its thing, and you'll be able to induce a normal movement. Okay. I mean, well. Clearly, that I mean, I think you're kind of straw man in the sense of uh, right. alternative, but yeah. that's right. But the, um, <laughs> but the so I'll let you knock it down. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, clearly, you know, there's the classic experience, like I think Gallus still did, you know, in terms of if you do the different cut the, the, the CNS at different levels, and what can the system do? So if you do spinalization, you can you spinalize animals, you can get the behavior, but it knows nothing about goals, and knows nothing about motivation. If you do hypothalamic, then you get some sense of that it can actually do like thermoregulation, and you can kind of walk towards you know basic things. You have cortex, and you can actually say it's going towards food and do sensory things. So the nature of the richness of how it actually produces the behaviors in the context of motivated goals and things, and whether it's internally driven or externally driven, clearly the rest of the brain is kind of doing that kind of computation, that kind of integration. The spinal cord doesn't have access to those kinds of, those variables and those kinds of more motivational issues. So if that's, I mean, a fair question, answer to. Yeah, well, is, but, but uh, I guess what I was, I was trying to figure out is that, um, yeah, Parkinsonian patients lack a lot of motivation, but if they, do have the motivation to just get up and walk across the room for whatever reason, um, they're so unable to actually initiate the movement. Right. But and I mean, it's not really a lack of motivation, it's just uh, it's, it's a motor deficit. Well, but it's, it's a sensory motor deficit. It's kind of how do you, what are the cues that you can use to actually initiate the movement to hit the programs and initiate them and have them go right, forward. Right. Right. So it's a question of how you translate from these external cues into the actual, or external or internal cues, how do you translate that to initiate patterns that might exist someplace else as you go forward? Right. So, I mean, that clearly, you know, the spinal cord doesn't have a whole lot of visual input, you know, so, I mean, it can't really take that, you know, those kinds of things, and it doesn't know much about, you know, these internal state variables and things as well. Do we know, actually, in that, whether it's, so in some ways we're talking about whether the deficit there is before or after the homunculus, mm -hmm. right? Because it could be a problem that they want to do something and they just can't send the signal to the spinal cord the signal or the signal they do send is all screwed up, right? It's, yeah. it, so that, they, that's what I, I was so, thinking know, that might be the, the reason why you, then you don't see um, all these other movements that, that may be just controlled at the spinal level. It's because, uh, for example, Parkinsonian patients also have um, hypertrophy because mm -hmm. basically their muscles are always contracted. Right. And maybe they just can't initiate movements because they just can't relax. I don't know. <laughs> okay. But um, I was just trying yeah. to come up with something about you know where you know, how how are we going to be able to actually just separate what is um, a a movement that's dictated by the way a limb is shaped and and one that's controlled more controlled by higher order systems yeah i mean i, I think the um 
No, I mean, that's really, it's so right. So that, I guess in the context that I'm saying, there's things that the, the systems, the biomechanics are, make easy to happen. Um, and then as opposed to saying, I want to do whatever the hell I want and I'm going to make it happen, you know, one way or the other. And I'll figure out, you know, how to do ice skating or whatever, which is not maybe what the system's built to do. So, I mean, yes, so totally. There's going to be, like, things that are going to be potentially, like, you know, basic and more, uh, I mean, this is, I hate invoking evolution, but I mean, you know, more kind of, you know, phylogenetically, you know, fundamental. <coughs> things like locomotion, things like withdrawal reflexes. And these are things that are really fundamental to survival and to, you know, how this, the system is going to continue on and, you know, um, procreate, etc. Um, and those things might be more fundamental in terms of the design of the musculature as well as the CNS and more kind of basic in that kind of way. But you've clearly developed the ability to be much more flexible and much richer in the kinds of motor behaviors that we can do. And at those levels, sure, we still want to pay attention to the biomechanics. We don't want to put extra effort than we need to, but it might not be the fundamental limitation that was there before. And then, moreover, you know, there's things, you know, clearly like the hand affords an incredible amount of flexibility. And that's something that, you know, if we, there, there could still be, I guess I'm saying, that, that the ability for the biomechanics to be, allow for more flexibility and more individuation of control, you know, for things that are going to be, you know, much more precise in what they need to do as well. Very vague hand waving. <laughs> so um, I also wanted to bring up that your, your work has taken a novel computational rather than correlational approach to identifying muscle synergies in the spinal cord. That's the, um, I guess, your graduate level work. And then you also extended your analysis into the temporal domain by looking at time-bearing synergies, which I thought is some really cool stuff. So can you just give sort of a, a little bit of a long view on the history of some of these ideas and how the vantage point shifted at that point when you did that work in the late 90s and, and why hadn't people been looking at, at things in that way so previously? Just the computational approach. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, so the, the abstract. Um, yeah. So, I mean, like, historically, like, you know, so the, the kind of, it, you know, it also predates Sherrington as well. If you go back into the to the, um, the 19th century, there's people who talk about the atomic view of motor control and things like that. But so there have been these ideas that there's these fixed units of activation. And then, you know, so Sherrington was flexion and extension, and then Grillner turns into unit burst generators, which kind of controls sets of muscles acting at joints primarily. And then that's been elaborated as well. Um, and the evidence for that, you know, like there's Grillner and Zanger from 1975 or so where they do like spinalize different parts of the cord and just look at kind of the natural variability that you see. And then, the, you know, they see that ankles, you'll see an ankle oscillation, which will be independent from a knee oscillation and things like that. And then um, people like Paul Stein, who works in the turtle, and then they do similar kinds of things where they say, OK, look at scratch reflexes. And then you find, you know, from one scratch cycle to the next. Um, one set of muscles will disappear, another one will be inserted, um, or if you like lesion a part of the cord, then that means that this one component will disappear, things like this. So this, the ideas have been around in those kind of contexts for a long time, but it's been primarily kind of um, qualitative and anecdotal, you know, where you just kind of say, here's, we have these trials and these traces, and look, these things come in and out. Um, and this is evidence for these kinds of structures, this kind of control element. So, um, and then, so there's that literature. There's also literature that's kind of, um, so Jane McPherson does posture control in the cat. 
and she did a lot of really, really cool experiments where she kind of um, was looking at postural perturbations. So you have cats standing on a force plate and you give perturbations of the force plate in different directions. And she was really looking at kind of, can you explain that in terms of synergies? And so what she found is that muscles are tuned for particular directions of perturbations, but what she didn't find, or that she found that a lot of muscles had complicated tuning curves. You know, so you'd, they'd be activated in one direction and then activated in a different direction mm -hmm. as well. Other muscles would be simpler, you know. So she didn't see any really gross, simple patterns of muscle activations which would correspond to synergies. And she kind of concluded from that work that there aren't these structures and that you have this kind of very complicated individual tuning of muscles which relate to the behavior. So I think it's a minor step, but I think the, the computational stuff that we did, basically the, the really, I mean, there's different aspects to it, but in some ways, conceptually, the thing that changes is that we allow for these structures to affect, to, you know, these different synergies to affect the same muscle, okay? So that when we have complicated, like in McPherson's work, if you have a complicated tuning curve with different lobes or different directions, we can say that, okay, that's this muscle being activated in the context of one synergy, and then for a different direction, it's activated in the context of a different synergy. And so we can parse the muscle activation patterns in those terms. And then so Lena Ting, who's kind of done the same kind of analysis, she actually did a postdoc with um, Jane McPherson and took those data sets and showed that, look, now we can explain what, we, what she saw and what she saw was evidence against synergies in the context and explain it as being synergies based on these kinds of analyses. So it's really, in some ways, a pretty trivial step, <laughs> but because um, as opposed to just kind of taking each muscle individually, it allows for kind of more of the kind of the multivariate correlation structure in these kinds of analyses using things like non-negative matrix factorization and ICA and things. But you know, in many ways, these are really old techniques. I mean, and the, you know, the model that I showed—it's a really simple model. You know, it's just linear combination, yeah. and um, in most of you know, so. Principal components, factor analysis, NMF, ICA, are all essentially the same statistical model. They just have the same generative model. They just have different statistical assumptions about the noise and about the sources within their, themselves. Um, so it's really kind of only, it's those, that small change which lets us kind of access the hypothesis in this more kind of quantitative way. So, so the other the interesting thing that I thought, um, I think Todd agreed when we were talking about this too. So your work addresses, um, aspects of motor system, both in terms of hierarchical neural control, as well as in terms of intrinsic CPGs. Mm. So you seem to have kind of your feet in both fields there. Is there, you would think that the two communities would be sort of at odds with each other. Is that necessarily true? And, you know, or do you see yourself bridging the gap, or have we just got it all wrong from the outside? Uh, um Tell me the two communities again. <laughs> so, sort of the people who believe that there's a sort of a, a command center, a, a, there's a neural control center as opposed to the you know intrinsic CPG, you know, the oscillations and things happening very locally. A neural command center. What means? The, so the neural control people who are help me with this, Todd. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> the, so more they, of the, the, the internal the models, right, the, and kind of sensor motor a, transformations, right? As a, the centrally mediated stuff, as opposed to the local intrinsic. Yeah. No. I. I, I mean. I. I'm not going to be claim that I provide that intersection. But I mean the. Um, but are the, they? I mean, you would think that they would be sort of talking at sort of different they, ends of the. They use very different not, language. Yeah. yeah. It's very different. Um, 
they come to the table with very different conceptions of what motor control is about and how it works. And um, there are intersections between them now, and there are actually some that are kind of really interesting. So, um, but I think, you know, just to characterize each, like the, the, the neural control one is more involved, more coming from kind of from a robotics point of view, of kind of saying, you know, I need to move a, a, a physical plant with interesting dynamics from one point to the other to do it stably, and I've got certain costs that I need to optimize as I'm doing that. How do I figure out, you know, a visual representation of the target, transform that into different coordinate frames, and then go forward with that to, to finally get to the motor act, and what's the best way to do that? Um, whereas the CPG community is more about saying, um, what, where is the... the the, the oscillator that defines the behavior. And once we understand that, then feedback can kind of get on top of that. But there's not like, you know, coordinate transformations or anything like that. It's just kind of, where's the program that defines the behavior in that way? Um, so, yeah, I don't know if they're so much at odds as much as they just don't talk to each other. <laughs> so it's not that they, there's clear antagonism. It's that, at least historically, it's just that they don't know about each other in many cases. And um, except at, the, you know, the basic level of kind of how things go. But there's lots of really cool stuff. So I mean, like Keir Pearson is fantastic. Like he's really, um, he comes more from the locomotion point of view, but he's incredibly creative, incredibly energetic of this of this work. So he's, you know, there he, he's done some really cool experiments in terms of um, he does things like cut. That's he cuts the sensory, the motor innervation to one of your gastroc muscles. Okay, and then he asks, okay, how do cats? adapt to that. And he shows that, okay, you increase the activation of the, if you cut, if you, I think he cuts the medial, and then you look at kind of that the, the, the lateral starts, I think it's actually the other way around. So the other head increases its activation. And you also change your reflex gains and you change other muscle activation patterns and things. But what he shows is this really cool, uh, I without getting into the details, I mean, basically he shows phenomenology, which is exactly parallel to what you see when you're doing these more complicated kind of motor learning tasks with the robots and things that people are doing for humans. You know, this bit about how you go from compensating for feedback to how do you internalize that representation in terms of your feed-forward control and how do you make these predictive compensations for expected perturbations. And he shows that basically in locomotion you can see the same kinds of elements. And so, you know, he started talking about things in terms of internal models and, excuse me, using those kind of, that kind of language that people use for, you know, motor control and things. Um, and then more recently, there's also, I was talking a little bit, there's, you know, some, this is kind of what I was talking before, but like the question of what is the CPG, you know, what does it actually mean? What does it actually represent? And so, you know, historically it's been like the CPG is locomotion, you know, so what, when the animal wants to walk from point A to point, you know, to point A to point B, it goes down and says, okay, start walking, hits the CPG, CPG produces the behavior and okay, you've got some feedback on there to make sure you're not falling down. But basically, the patterns of muscle activation is dictated by that oscillator. Okay? Um, in contrast, if you think about things from a control point of view, um, this is Art Quo's work where he's kind of proposed that, that what you see as the CPG is actually a forward model for your limb dynamics. So if you're doing any kind of optimal control, and you have, like, especially if you have delays in your feedback or if you have noisy feedback, you want to have some prediction of what your next state is going to be based upon your knowledge of your system, right? So I know in general, if my limb is moving forward I'm in a given state with a certain velocity, I can kind of predict what's going to happen 100 milliseconds later and where my limb is going to be based upon my knowledge of the, the limb properties, right? So it makes sense for my controller for locomotion to have that internal model of how the system evolves so that I can kind of 
know what's going to happen next and get a if my signal, my sensors are noisy or things happen unexpected, I kind of know what's going to happen. I can compare that to what actually comes in. Um, and so one of the predictions would be if you had something like that, and now you deafferent the animal or you put it in a dish, you know, if you now say, okay, produce locomotion, it doesn't have access to the sensory information. All it has is information about its, um, its own prediction of what's going to happen next. Okay? So as far as it knows, it's saying that my, my limb is evolving according to this forward model. So now if you have a controller which is paying attention to that state estimate, it's going to produce behavior contingent upon your state, which is going to look like locomotion, right? So in that context, all of the experiments for CPGs will, are consistent with the idea that you basically have a forward model for your limb dynamics, okay? So it, it doesn't change things, you know, all the phenomenology will be the same. So will all, will all of it be the same? Or will you get... Well, no. I mean, all of the phenomenology that's been seen so far, essentially... Uh, the, the question of how you're going to actually differentiate the two, yeah. it's not totally straightforward. But, I mean, I think the, you know, it changes the context. You know, it changes the way you think about what the spinal cord is doing and what, what we call the CVG, what it's actually doing. And so, you know, things like, um, you know, how does the system change if you have, you know, so one of the things in, in for control and doing state estimation is you want to pay attention to the statistics of, your sensory feedback. Okay, so you could have things which are, at, 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 on average, giving you some kind of correlated, um, correlated activity, activity that's correlated to the state of the limb. But it could be, from trial to trial, it's very, very noisy. Okay, so in in estimation, you will pay t- less attention to that input. You kind of downplay that. It's not clear that you would do the same thing for a CPG, right? So one of our predictions is that we could say that potentially, if we change the the reliability of the sensory information coming back to the spinal cord, will the reflexes change accordingly? You know, so this has been shown again in human psychophysics that if you kind of, if you do um, reaching tasks, okay, so you're moving to something and you change the reliability of your sensory information of the visual input, you'll shift from your internal estimation of what your limb is doing, or the other way around, you'll change, you'll shift from your external to your internal representation as your sensory information becomes less reliable, you'll, pay, you'll, you'll rely on your own estimate more. And this has been shown for vision, you know, for voluntary reaching movements. If, the, if locomotion, can we, if we talk about locomotion and spinal behaviors in the same kind of way, and if the CPG is doing this kind of state estimation, then we could make a prediction that the same kind of thing should happen. That as we make sensors, so like the spindle afferents coming from a muscle, less reliable, we should shut down the reflexes from that and kind of go more towards a feed-forward control. Exactly how to define that and design those experiments so that it's clearly distinguished. It's still kind of fuzzy, but at least it, I mean, it shifts the language that we talk about these things. How much it leads to a clearly testable difference and how much it leads to a completely different set of experiments is kind of an open question, but at least in terms of our the the conceptualization we bring to the table when we talk about it, it definitely changes the language. It, it seems so. interesting in that in that field that because you, at least somewhat from the outside or coming towards that, cause you, maybe because you have so many engineers, yeah. that the history of the ideas is really, they're really tied to these formalisms, right? And so uh, in some ways you've talk, you, you talked about, well, you get a formalism of looking at state spaces and stuff, and then you it's actually m- much easier to cross 
barriers or perspectives because you have this common thing and it's saying, oh, well, we just changed this bit of the formalism. We can talk about this. But it also seems like you get stuck in your formalism and oh, you absolutely. can build a, a whole wall. So it seems like there are no CPG guys. It seems to me, at least that's the way it seems to me. It seems to me like there is nobody in the field really looking at the CPG. Like you're, you know, you're saying that's the disconnect. Well, these guys are looking for where the CPG is, but it doesn't seem like those guys exist anymore. Sounds like still alive. They're there. Yeah, well, <laughs> you have to be careful who's going to be listening, right? Well, people still exist. Yeah. I, understand that, I understand that they still exist. So it seems that like, was Chris. <laughs> it seems the field, like you pointed out, the field has been dominated by engineers. And the engineers don't listen to the, the physiologists. And I mean, it seems to me like this is, you know, that the, the two should talk to one another and then you'd have the problem solved. It's, I mean, it's I mean, definitely true. Because I was... Uh, 30 years ago, this whole question of hierarchical control versus yeah, decentralized yeah. control was very central to engineering. And uh, yeah, there's very hierarchical control versus decentralized control. And uh, at that time, the debate uh, was, you know, which should you use? Okay. Primarily from sort of, we're not talking about biology here. And they never really came to the, any proper conclusion for the simple reason that they said that yeah, in hierarchical, hierarchical control, you need essentially sort of, you know, a system of, you know, ascending and descending interactions and you need to learn and adapt the system, and it's time-consuming and costly. And it, it also was a mathematical nightmare. But they said decentralized control is preferable because it is rapid. And I'm just wondering whether, and if you can comment on this, whether evolution has just sort of simply decided that, you know, there are certain, certain things like, for example, you talk about Parkinson's, that the voluntary sort of creation and, and starting and stopping of motion, basic motor programs, are essentially cast in a hierarchical framework. But the more essential aspects, which where you require quick dynamics, is cast in a decentralized context, which gives rise to the CPG at the level of the spinal cord. So you really are saying, I'm going to use both control strategies. It's just that I will use one where I need it and the other in other situations. So can, can we read the, the two different models again? So one is quick control, which is... The decentralized control. Decentralized so you have a series of control. CPGs all along your spinal cord. Right. And the other is your hierarchical system, which basically is the one where, which is, you know, you have... Basically, you can plan motor activities and you can percolate your control strategies down to the effectors. Yeah, I mean, I'm having a hard time really mapping that because, I mean, you know, any behavior has a goal associated with it, right? I mean, for it to be... And there's like, there's, you know, locomotion, you can think about that there is a natural hierarchy no, that's... Right. But but if you say locomotion, if you say, okay, I want to start walking from this point and to that point, okay. I don't have to intervene. I don't have to devote central resources to every step along the way. All I do is start, right. then devolve control to decentralize it in the sense you pass it on to your CPGs. Okay. Then you don't have to think about it anymore until you actually decide to stop. Master and the slaves. Yeah, it's... it's and I'm, I'm, my, my, the reason why I raise this is simply that, you know, they've never, engineers never really came to a conclusion on this because both strategies were optimal depending on which way. And, yeah, yeah. and well, I work in hierarchical control, so I, that's my, that was my experience of it. Okay. But I'm wondering if evolution has not come up with a clever way of just simply doing, make, making do with both. I mean, it seems totally feasible. I'm not sure. Yeah the next step of kind of what that would look like and how that maps onto yeah, circuitry. Right. And Matt so said earlier that, that he didn't like evolu like invoking evolution, right? <laughs> so he was on this question. I think you should. I think you should. I think you should. So, so that was the, an engineer. <laughs> so the, the, the question you asked was sort of related to the point I was trying to make earlier. And so I know that people who are looking at CPGs do exist and they're out there, but the point is, is that question that you asked is essentially, uh, to me, could be answered just looking at the circuit, looking at the synaptic physiology. If the CPGs are there, 
yeah. along the system, then that's certainly a feasible way yeah. of, of, but if they're not there, they're, they're not there. And it seems to me like that's a, a simple thing that could be looked at, but it seems like everything that we, you know, well, that just hasn't been addressed, hasn't been looked at. So where's but the it, disconnect? I mean, I think, well, but I think a lot of the disconnect actually, and that's this kind of, you know, I mean, I was kind of representing these things as two different camps and things. And, they, you know, they definitely do talk and they interact and they read each other's literature and things. I think a lot of the headache is the headache of all systems neuroscience is how do you go between the levels, right? Yeah. So engineering is really talking about the level of the phenomenology of kind of sure. how do you actually move from point A to point B. CPG people are saying, what is the circuitry? You know, and what are, how are these neurons? What are the properties of the neurons? Where are they located? How are they connected to each other? And the trick is that there's really hard to make that link, right? The people who are doing engineering, the predictions down to the circuitry are really ill-formed. You know, it's hard to know what kind of concrete predictions you'd make to differentiate different kinds of control structures. And then moreover, it's hard to say, based on the circuitry, what does that tell you about the control structures? Because the circuitry could be, you know, we don't have, all we can talk about is a small set of neurons. You know, we're looking at one small component of it, how that plays out to the entire circuit and what that means in terms of the control structures. I mean, I don't have a good way to access that. Well, I mean, well, there, the little bit of that's known, and that's sort of the point I think Carlos was making earlier, is that, you know, we, there's many examples in the brain you can look at, and you can look at the synaptic structure and say it performs that computation. It, it enhances contrast because it has lateral inhibition. And so it seems to me like those opportunities would be valid in spinal cord as well. Well, but I mean, so I agree entirely. Yeah. That's, that's really cool stuff. But I mean, like, okay, so... <laughs> That doesn't tell you necessarily how the system recognizes a cup versus your grandmother, right? It tells you that there's certain aspects of the environment that are important that it wants to highlight and pull out, but it doesn't tell you necessarily the high-level you know, strategy that's being implemented to go from the full thing, right? So, you know, at the level of, again, Nichols' work, you know, that's, I thought that's kind of comparable to saying contrast is important, right? That this 1A reflex is doing kind of clever sure, things sure, to sure. make things good doesn't necessarily tell you how do you move from point A to point B, how do you actually accomplish the task in that way, and what's the structure there. And sure, I mean, it'd be, and, you know, there's, so that is certainly the tradition, tradition. So people have said, okay, Renshaw cells, they have this recurrent feedback. Maybe that's there actually to do something like a contrast gain enhancement. So if you increase the inhibition, you'll change the slope of how descending inputs are actually translated to motor outputs in a kind of a way to boost up the gain to the either local spinal cord or from descending systems and things. You know, these ideas have been around there. It's still not quite the same. You know, it's not really saying, here we have this control principle and, you know, something that is a hierarchical control or not, how would that look in the circuitry, you know, in a concrete way? And, I mean, there's, you know, I'm kind of, that, that there are people now, and I think that's kind of, you know, there's more of a work of people who are kind of grounded in both, that are kind of saying, okay, we have some ideas of engineering principles, how they might be instantiated in kinds of neural representations and neural structures, and make predictions of what those should look like, you know, based upon these kinds of control, these control structures and things. And so there's some work that is going that way, and primarily like, um, excuse me, like Steve Scott and um, Emma Todorov are kind of working together for these things to see whether Emma's things in terms of optimal feedback control, stochastic feedback control, can we find evidence in terms of M1 firing patterns and things like that? Yeah, but some of the, some of, well, some of the Todoros work in, in general you could see is a great example of, of things that do make it across some divide, right? And just some simple idea of, 
of signal dependent noise yeah. that you kind of put it, you can get from some of the neural literature that you actually see. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know whether that was the origin of it, whether it was actually neural or not, but there were a lot of people talking about that in various communities right. that real neurons, the noise isn't additive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you just take that one concept and just using signal dependent noise in a very abstract way. You're not like going building up from the circuitry, but it made a big difference yeah, yeah. in terms of, these formal things that people were thinking about anyway, you just put one ingredient, just one little flavor of something that jumps the divide can make a big difference. No, I agree entirely. But I mean, that still is kind of, you know, that, that's people who are familiar with both communities and able to integrate and to make those kinds of combinations. The, the next question, of, I mean, again, like, you know, the whole, like, Mar idea of the different levels of analysis and things. So, I mean, the question of how you take things at kind of the algorithmic or computational level and translate them to implementation level is kind of that divide. And how to make those bridges is what systems neuroscience is all about. And, I mean, there's, I don't think we, there's not tons of examples where that's been a success. And I think that's true for motor, motor systems as well. That's fair. Another way to look at it is ask another question to ask is whether formal engineering algorithms, which have nothing to do with biology, right. have converged on solutions that are similar to biological principles. Oh, well, no, but I think that's, uh, go back to Todd's thing. I mean, I think that's the trick, right? Is that we have a set of ways of thinking about the system, and, you know, like, you know, synergies and whatnot is like my really stupid conceptualization of how things work. And that's because I'm, my limited understanding of this makes sense to me. And then, you know, I have no clue whether that's actually what's going on, you know, and that's, I'm kind of playing out that hypothesis. And at any given time step, we only have certain kinds of explanations that we can draw, you know, resources or use as resources to try to get insights to the system. Um, And that we're kind of constrained by the way we're thinking about things that way. Um, And it would be great if we could say, okay, let's go to the, the nervous system, record all these neurons, and then figure out what the strategy actually is. But that's incredibly hard to do. And, you know, it's kind of, again, just how do we go between these different levels of description? So I have one general question about prosthetics. Do you have time? Uh, sure. I just want your view on this. Okay. And it's because it's just, it's, you can speculate. It's very hard to come up with sensory prosthetics. For some reason, it's not been, I mean, yeah, cochlear implants are a few, but visual prosthetics, for example, okay. is very hard. But do you think the prognosis for, say, prosthetics at the motor end is much better? And, you know, if so, why? Uh, uh, I, I don't have, I mean, cochlear implants are fantastic, right? Cochlear, I mean, no? Or, yeah, they are. But I, I think in general, sensory, you know, like vision, for example, it's extremely hard to come up with something. No, that's true. Um, I mean, the, there's lots of good successes for motor prostheses, and there's like, you know, the case um, grasping prostheses are very nice. Um, and they improve function and, you know, actually they're useful to people. Um, if we're going to have motor processes that replicate the richness of natural behaviors, I don't know that I would put my money on that over getting something that works for vision. You, know? you can do better than a wooden leg, right? What's that? You can do better than a wooden leg. I mean, a lot of wooden legs are pretty clever. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, like historically, a lot of the really nice prosthetic designs are just uh-huh. passive mechanisms, right? Where you right. just kind of have very clever gearing and clever cabling that, depending upon what the person does, you change the, the properties and things. And that's where a lot of the, you know, really good successes as far as like, especially for amputees have come from is like, 
just really nice mechanical designs of that prosthetic device and things. But doesn't motor synergies like doesn't doesn't hold great promise? Yeah, you, the control, well, the, the, you know, the design of those is now a low dimensional problem, well, so, and mm -hmm. figuring out how to actually control it may be not so intractable or something. So this is what we're trying to pursue. Really. And to get some grant funding for that, right? Yeah, idea. We, right? we put in a, a grant for that to try to say, can we take a, a paralyzed rat leg, you know, to so take a, a limb, implant it with um, electrodes to stimulate the muscles, you know? and then do essentially what we've done in simulation to try to identify what are the good control structures you know, based upon the dynamics of the limb to do that kind of identification. And then once we have that, can we then use that kind of representation to produce trajectories and do things like either the control that we have already or do things like reinforcement learning, and does that make things faster to do FES control in that context? So, yeah, I mean, I, I have no idea if it's going to work, but I mean, that's kind of, that's the pitch we're making to NIH, yes. Um. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I mean, you know, if a Parkinson's patient could speak into a, a microphone and say, you know, leg move or something like that, and, you know, begin, you know, yeah, yeah. send the command on the Well, but I think that's also, I mean, <laughs> but that's part of the trick as well, is that a lot of the FES control applications are just kind of like, go reach, and then the thing goes out yeah. here, and then go grasp, and it goes like this, right? And, you know, and certainly a lot of the, um, Neural prosthetics, in the sense of you know people using M1 activity to drive robots or exoskeletons or their own muscles and things, are all entirely feed forward. And the question of how I think critical, and I'm not the only person saying this, obviously, but how you can take sensory information to actually make it online control, yeah. and becomes the really the big question about for all these things to get any kind of richness of behavior, any kind of adaptive adaptive behaviors, we need to have some sort of sensory feedback rather than just the vision that we have in the goggles, and. I mean, whether synergy is going to be helpful with that, I don't know, but I mean, at least in the way we've, we're pitching it and kind of the way we're thinking about it, if these synergies are there for controlling dynamics that are controlling the significant dynamics, that also makes implications in terms of what states you should pay attention to as well. And so it might give you ways to think about feedback as well of what you should provide to the subject, you know, so... The dimensionality aspect of um, we talk about in terms of control is also really there in terms of sensation. You know, what sensor should you actually pay attention to? This is great. Thanks for joining us, everyone. We'll see you again next week. Thank you. Thank you.